For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Essayist Adiba Nelson asks, what will it take for America to understand the pain of black women? Find out about a new oral history project that's preserving the stories of one of Tucson's oldest black communities. Jeff Notkin, the president of the National Space Society, talks about what the first SpaceX manned mission means for the next chapter in space travel. And did you ever hear about the time that Speedway Boulevard was declared the ugliest street in America? Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson-based author and activist. On Monday, May 25th, Memorial Day, she heard about the killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. It weighed upon her and even by quarantine standards made her feel agoraphobic and unwilling to go out. A few nights later, while fighting sleeplessness, she wrote this essay. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to the show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. It includes recountings of recent tragedies that may be disturbing to some listeners. I am Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. I wonder if this is it. I wonder if this will be the murder that finally forces America to take a good, hard look at itself, its origins, its practices, and rage until all of the gears grind to a screeching halt and we are forced to go back to the drawing board. Or will this killing, the murder of George Floyd, go the way that all the deaths before him went? temporary rage until the next big thing happens to distract us from our collective wound. I wonder what it will look like, the murder that finally pushes this country over the edge. Will it be a child? No. We saw the deaths of Tamir Rice and Ayanna Jones, and before that, we saw it with Emmett Till and four girls when an Alabama church was bombed. And 65 years after Mamie Till Mobley gave her son an open casket funeral, revealing his mutilated body to a nation and sparking a movement, Black men are still being wrongfully accused of crimes they did not commit. Black men are still being murdered by police in full view of the recording public, basically a modern-day lynching. And some white women are still using their white woman power to try to snuff the life out of black men simply because they can. So no, the murder of a child isn't it. Maybe it will be the death of a woman. Nope, not that either. We had Sandra Bland and Brianna Taylor and Yvonne Smallwood. So that's not it. I know it will be a woman murdered in front of a child. Wrong again. There was a Tatiana Jefferson. Wait, I got it. A black man being murdered in front of his four-year-old child. Surely that will turn America on its head and we will finally see radical change and radical justice. But no, 
not even the murder of Philando Castile has changed anything. So what is it going to take, America? How gruesome will the murder of another Black American have to be before you take a serious stand against racism and begin tearing it down from the inside out? How angry will Black women have to get before you say enough is enough? Every person in this country should be feeling the pain of every Black mother who has ever had to bury her son or daughter because a system founded on racist ideologies deemed their child's life not worthy. Every person in this country should be screaming, storming Capitol buildings, but not with guns, because we know how that will end for Black people, protesting police brutality and taking a knee. But they are not. And I have to ask why. When you pledge allegiance to the flag, you literally say the words, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. Do those words mean anything? Or is it performative, a reflex? Do Americans really want justice for all? Or just the people who look like the founding fathers of this country? I don't know the answers to these questions that I pose. I don't know when enough will actually be enough for America. What I do know is this. It's enough for Black America. It's been enough for the last 400 years since the first slave touched American soil. We just didn't have the freedom or the language to say so. But today we do. Today we do. And we are screaming it at the top of our lungs, screaming our siren song of collective, unrelenting pain and trauma. We're just wondering when the rest of America is going to join in the chorus. This essay was published in The Lily, a publication of The Washington Post. It's available at thelily.com. You can also find more from Adiba Nelson on her website, The Full Nelson. Redlining is a tool of segregation. From its creation in the 1950s, Sugar Hill was a Tucson neighborhood that was redlined for black residents. The result was a community that thrived despite adversity. Later, a combination of forces, including the war on drugs and the encroachment of student housing, chipped away at the foundation of the Sugar Hill community. But the current work of Sadie Shaw, an oral historian, is one important way this neighborhood's hidden history is being preserved. Sadie Shaw tells us more next in a story produced by Andrew Brown. Sugar Hill neighborhood is one of Tucson's historic black neighborhoods. People started moving in uh, late 40s, early 50s, around the time that the city decided to redline this area for black homeowners. My grandpa came here in the 50s brought his family along from East St. Louis. And yeah, we've been here ever since. Sugar Hill is a name that's given to many black communities all over the country. It refers to a black neighborhood that's kind of up and coming. 
My name is Gregory Hill. My family moved over here in 1960. I was four years old when we moved over here. My parents and the parents before me, they're the ones that built the community. And they built a rich community, faith-based community. Every, most of the people went to church. It was one of the middle-class neighborhoods where a lot of professionals lived. There was a lot of military families. There was principals, teachers, doctors, dentists. All right, Sugar Hill, let's do something. Can we make some noise up in here? What it did was foster neighborhoods that became united and achieved historic things. From the 60s, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, everything was very close-knit. To my brothers and sisters from Sugar Hill, Unfortunately, the drug epidemic hit, and that literally destroyed a lot of people. You know, a lot of people went to prison, a lot of people got addicted to drugs, a lot of people died. You know, a lot of people lost their homes. Some people lost their homes behind that. Unfortunately, that's what happened. Hey, I'm Jackie Blue. God bless you. I know folks that because of those times and those days, some of them uh, just getting out of the penitentiary, you know? Been done all that time. And that's who I'm talking to in my music. I'm talking to the people that was right out there with me, whether it's uh, fighting a revolution or selling drugs in the street. The goal of the Sugar Hill Oral History Project is to make visible the history of the neighborhood, the lives of the people who, who lived here and who still live here. and just to increase the awareness of um, the neighborhood and the black community in Tucson. My mother came out to support her aunt, found a job. My father, on the other hand, a little bit of a different story. He came here with qualified papers to be a heavy equipment operator, to build homes or to build highways. And he was putting in applications everywhere and he couldn't get a job. Till finally somebody, one of his friends, told him that, man, they're putting your application at the bottom of the list. You will never get hired because you're black. He could get a job as a, as a janitor, which is what he did. So he was an angry man deep down inside because he had to spend most of his life doing work that he didn't like to do. When it comes to racism, segregation, and oppression, I think it's you know similar in all areas of the country. Uh, everything you see internationally happened here, locally, on a smaller scale. Students rioting. I've had people get shot by the police. You know, relatives get shot by the police. I don't think it's vastly different from living in the South. Maybe you weren't going to get lynched, but, you know, there's still all kinds of oppression and, you know, places where you had to stay and jobs that you couldn't get. As long as I can remember, I always wanted to play a guitar. I used to imagine that I would take a shoebox 
get a rubber band and a stick off the chinaberry tree and make me a guitar. Wow. Yeah. What's your style of, of or your process of, of writing these songs? Um, um, specifically the Party at the Bro. Did you write that mm -hmm. when the bro was still around mm -hmm. or did it come afterwards? A few years before. The Bo Brummel was a social club. I don't think it was just black people, but I think it was mostly black people. I used to go there with my dad sometimes during the day and, and hang out. It's been torn down now, and I think that people are still kind of upset about that. I could just see how it was going and how we lost so many places like the bro. Uh, yeah, I wrote that because I experienced that. Jackie Blue's music is kind of like a historical timeline of um, Tucson's black community. When did the neighborhood start to change? Like it is now? Yeah, when did it become like a black community into something different? And, and what do you think caused that? Time brings about a change. So a lot of that I attribute to time. The whole block is student houses now. Sugar Hill has definitely been targeted more because it is a black neighborhood. Feldman's neighborhood to the south, Jefferson Park to the east, they all have historic designation status. You know, Sugar Hill does not. It's just kind of sad that uh, some of the things, most lot of stuff we fought for is cool, some of it is just, and the people that fought for it, they, you know, nobody knows about them. Nobody cares. That's the thing, nobody really cares. Yeah, I can tell them about them, but okay. My main purpose working with the Neighborhood Association was to bring light to the historic residents, um, the history of it, and just to make, um, make the neighborhood visible again and in, the, in the real way that you know, it was in the past. The original music in that story was by Jackie Blue. Thanks to Andrew Brown for creating a radio adaptation, you can see the version that aired on Arizona Illustrated at azpm.org. The SpaceX Crew Dragon launch last Saturday is being hailed by space enthusiasts as the beginning of a new era. How will this symbolic achievement propel space exploration? Elisa Ivanitskaya discusses the launch with Jeffrey Notkin, a science writer, TV host, and meteorite enthusiast who is also the president of the National Space Society. It's a global nonprofit advocating on behalf of humanity's future as a spacefaring civilization. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bottom dog. It was a combination of 
delight and, and reassurance that this was happening again. But I almost thought that I was watching a science fiction show. I'm a child of Apollo. I watched all the Apollo missions on <laughs> black and white television sets. And when you look at the difference, not just the quality of the picture, but the way it's presented, we don't have a science commentator sitting at a desk anymore showing us models of what's happening. We've got split screen, we've got high definition footage. If we're going to make this dream of space flight for humanity real, we have to share the adventure. What's the meaning of this launch? A lot's being said about how wonderful it is that the American astronauts are leaving on a mission on an American rocket from American soil again. And that's all true. It's great. But it's not just a nationalist thing. It's a technological accomplishment. It's a joint effort. And in order to make spaceflight successful and acceptable and ongoing, we really have to bring the costs down. And that is happening with SpaceX. So if we go back to the space shuttle era, the average cost of getting a pound of material into orbit was a little under $20,000. And the SpaceX Falcon 9, the reusable version, is at about $1,200 per pound. The cost is coming down tremendously, and it will continue to come down if we keep traveling on this path. What do you think about commercial crew ships in terms of bringing costs down of delivering astronauts to space station? It's an enormous step forward. And there's one aspect of the Russian space program taking American astronauts into space that I really liked, and that is international cooperation. The cost and the accessibility are tremendous improvements, but it's also the reusability of the Falcon 9. We're not letting the first stage rocket fall back into the ocean and be discarded. SpaceX has actually figured out a way to land them on the barge and reuse them. And it just feels better ethically to not have to discard something that so much time and effort and money has gone into constructing. What about the competitors? Within reason, the more competitors we have in commercial space, the better we're going to do. Large aerospace companies provided at great expense spacecraft to the United States federal government. They had cost plus contracts and sole source contracts, which didn't really give them any incentive to keep prices down. And there's also been a lot of political influence in how spacecraft get built. An aerospace company might strategically send work to certain states in order to get the support of senators and representatives who come from that state. And that's not a cost-effective way to build technological hardware, and it's probably not ethical either. Commercial companies don't have to exist at the whims of politicians. In the commercial space sector, we're going to see enormous developments. What NSS hopes to see in terms of space tourism? One of the defining goals of the National Space Society is to establish humanity as a spacefaring species. The NSS goal is grander and more long-term than just space tourism, but space tourism is a great way to get people familiar with the experience and to help spread the message. What do you think is the next milestone? We're in the midst of a very exciting robot mission, the OSIRIS-REx mission, which 
has its home base right here in Tucson. And this is a fascinating asteroid-based mission that has sent a robot spacecraft to asteroid Bennu to remove material and bring it safely back to Earth. That's a spectacular step. If we prove that we can send a robot craft to an asteroid and extract material and bring it back to Earth and examine it, that's the proof of concept that we can go bigger. Once we can extract those raw materials in space, we don't have to take everything into orbit anymore. When we've crossed that bridge and we've started to manufacture things from raw materials that were harvested in space, the model and the opportunities will have changed forever. Elise Ivanitskaya spoke to Jeffrey Notkin, the Tucson-based president of the National Space Society. You can find much more about human spaceflight, past and future, at space.nss.org. When I moved to Tucson in 1991, I thought it was an urban legend that Speedway Boulevard had been called the ugliest street in America in the 1970s by Life magazine. But it was something that almost every longtime Tucson resident seemed to know about. The truth is a little more complicated because the story dates back farther than most people realize. I asked David Layton, the writer of the Street Smarts column in the Arizona Daily Star, to look into the history of Speedway's ignominious reputation. And here is some of what he discovered. The origins of that phrase actually go back to 1962. Uh, Mayor Lou Davis, during a free city council meeting, Uh, where they were talking about people's dangerous driving habits in Tucson, um, he stated that East Speedway is the ugliest street in the U.S. You have to ask yourself what he was maybe hoping to gain politically by making that statement. Well, he was the mayor at the time. Uh, He was in his first 30 days. I think his background was real estate. He had been a real estate developer uh, before going into politics. I think it was just because of his real estate background that he was you know, more aware of it than maybe some people of how ugly it was. In the photograph, the most famous photograph of the area that you see, it's at Country Club and Speedway. And indeed, you can't see the mountains for the billboards. Um, It is absolutely littered with signage. Yeah, I mean, Speedway Boulevard, especially during the 60s, and, and well into the 70s and to some degree in the 80s, was full of, like, ugly, unattractive neon signs, really large billboards, Um, unattractive buildings that were really close to the actual boulevard itself. What can you tell us about the period after Davis made those comments? What kind of impact did that have on local business or the way people uh, felt about Speedway? You know, there was disagreement on how people felt about it. I mean, some people uh, who owned businesses on Speedway wanted him to stop saying that in public. In fact, there was actually a city council meeting held to talk about how ugly the street really was or wasn't. And you had two different people, for example, uh, Ben Solat, who was a businessman uh, on Seaway, who just wanted Davis to stop talking about it. And then on the other side, you had the president of the Seaway Merchants Association, who actually wanted him to continue to talk about it because they wanted to be able to improve the situation. On the other hand, You had a small businessman named Tom Botti, who owns the uh, Indian Arts and Crafts Store, or did at this point on Speedway. It's now relocated to uh, River Road in Campbell. But he actually made use of this uh, title in his advertisements. 
on several occasions uh, after his address, which was 1706 East Seaway Boulevard, he would say, uh, the ugliest street in America, says Tom, <laughs> um, which is pretty amusing. And then, you know, another one, uh, after he lists his address, calls it America's ugliest thoroughfare. It was not too long after uh, Lou Davis was quoted as calling it the ugliest street in America when a columnist, Don Shelley, who worked for the Tucson Citizen, wrote an editorial where he requested that we not refer to it as the ugliest street in America, but we just call it the ugliest street in town, okay? (laughs) Which I think is funny. And then Shelley offered up his own name for Speedway Boulevard. He suggested Eyesore Avenue. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, Don Shelley really got into how ugly it really was. I mean, his opinion piece in his column really, like, exposes all the grunginess and the garbage and trash in front of the shops and empty oil drums in front of a hardware store and, uh, you know, old toilets sitting, you know, by Speedway. And, I mean, he really went after them and the ugly colors that they painted the supermarkets and the, how the American flag was faded and they weren't replacing them. And he, he really went after them. It was, it was really kind of an interesting column. You did uncover a lot of stuff, and I understand that you're actually going to be breaking this into a two-part column for the uh, star. Just tell us a little bit about where people can find this information. The Street Smarts for July the 6th will have the first part about Ugly Speedway, uh, prior to the 1970 Life Magazine article. You know, Life Magazine actually did a story on the Pied Piper of Tucson. Uh, Charles Schmidt was the guy's name. He was the one that killed three uh, teenage girls. And when they covered the story about the case, they covered in detail uh, how this guy was connected with Speedway and all his friends cruised Speedway and they had nothing to do and really kind of connected the two together about how, how bad Speedway really was. It's kind of an interesting history that most people have either completely forgotten about or have believed that it was actually Life Magazine that called it that. Uh, Life Magazine just quoted a mayor. They didn't give the name. They said the mayor, and the mayor at the time was Jim Corbett, who had actually not said that. It was the previous mayor, uh, Lou Davis, had said it. So it'll be a two-part series in Street Smarts, uh, which comes out in the Arizona Daily Star newspaper the first Monday of each month. I mean, Speedway today, while isn't a place of beauty, is nowhere as ugly as it used to be. And we'll have a couple of photographs to prove the point that David is making about Speedway on the website. Uh, Look for the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.